Let me invite you to stand, if you will, for the gospel lesson. Comes to us this morning from the good news according to St. Luke, the 14th chapter. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And he said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. This is the gospel of our Lord. In his NoHo penthouse with a rooftop pool and a large Salvador Dali sculpture in its sprawling living room, the hedge fund slash filmmaker pries open a crate of Bordeaux while eight dinner guests, guests sip Dom Perignon and snack on deviled quail eggs topped with ocetra caviar. In the kitchen, New York-based chef Jan Nuri, 35 years old, preps a casual dinner of the most expensive ingredients money can buy. It's just one of some 200 luxury dinners, dinners he will cater with his small brigade of guns for hire this year. I've flown chickens private, brags Nuri. I had my Parisian driver go to Ramoa to buy suitcases, line them with styrofoam, go to the supplier in Brest, pick up 14 chickens, bring them to the airport, and drop them into a jet. I can't even tell you what that cost. Since leaving Daniel Belude's catering business in 2011, Nuri has become the go-to cook for top brands such as Netflix, Omega, Dior, and Tiffany, as well as one percenters looking for a private but nonetheless extraordinary meal. For a quote-unquote simple barbecue, Nuri rode into Virginia with $12,000 worth of beef, 48 Wagyu tomahawks, which he personally dragged for 300 days. To cater an East Hampton soiree, Nuri made sure that his live blue lobsters from Brittany got the same VIP treatment as the guests themselves, with a private helicopter flight and a chauffeur ready at the airport. In pursuit of the freshest seafood possible for hors d'oeuvres at a Bottega Veneta show in Manhattan, he shipped 1,000 live langoustinis from Scotland. Catering is kind of a silly word, says Nuri. It makes it sound like the pizza place on the corner does the same thing I do. 
The article goes on, costs can vary widely based on ingredients and the number of guests. Nuri's starting fee is $5,000, but he's prepared a dinner for more than $15,000 per head. Quote, for people who can afford him, and it's an incredible experience, says one guest. Nuri's clients often work in finance or fashion and learn about him via word of mouth, although he's also cooked for numerous celebrities, including Martha Stewart, John Legend, and Oprah Winfrey. Not only do they appreciate his meticulous presentation, which often includes vintage Tiffany silver and anachronisms such as 19th century duck press, but his ebullient approach to the all-too-frequently solemn fine dining experience comes as a relief. He's known for pouring tequila shots between courses, such as foie gras stuffed scallops, cooked directly in a fireplace. This is his end quote. At 11 Madison Park, 100 people eat the exact same menu at the exact same time. It's not an exclusive experience. No top chef will ever see me as their peer, but I make more money than they do, so I don't really care. This is all from an article in the New York Post called Inside the Lavish Dinners of the Ultra Rich. How New York City can you get, right? And I'm, I'm here for it on some levels. I mean, I love it. It's amazing. Like the nicest things on the planet and someone can get this together and feed it to people. I perfectly uh, honest when I'm saying that I want some of you to invite me to this man's dinner. I want to go. I want to be a part of it. I want to eat it. I want to try all these things. It sounds amazing. And uh, in our ministry over the last 15 years or so, we've spent a lot of time talking about the goodness of creation and about participating with God and renewing things and cultivating things and being creative and delighting, especially in food. Our churches have been known for potlucks and hanging out and welcome and all kinds of celebration of food. I mean, Jesus' first miracle was making the best wine that's ever been tasted. He talks over and over again about wedding feasts and about life with God and life in his future kingdom as a marriage supper of a lamb, a feast of which no one can imagine. But at best, as we see in the story, I think it pulls out, at best, celebrating food only gets us to the surface of things. There is something deeper than just fancy food that we desire. There's something deeper than just a nice meal or good ingredients that gives us delight. We have a deeper hunger, a deeper hunger for something more than just good food. Jesus himself talked about it like this. He said, his disciples are like, we have no food. Send someone to get food. We're so hungry. We're out here in the wilderness. And he says, I have food that you know nothing about. He says later in one of his famous sermons, do not worry and work and labor for food that perishes, but instead labor for the food that leads to everlasting life. He once told a thirsty woman, I am the living water you could never thirst again. Jesus is here again at a dinner party in our text. Everyone is salivating. They're actually hungry. They're waiting. But what are they really hungry for in this passage? The context is Jesus. There's some scuttlebutt going around that this guy's a prophet. He's doing some crazy, miraculous things. Uh, this is... You know, I know it's all anachronistic to do anything talking about something in the ancient Near East 2,000 years ago, but it's a little bit of a mix of holy man, shaman, slash kind of rock star, maybe going to be a king. Like, you know, he's on the come up. He's, he might get tapped and he's going to be in charge. And he's invited, it says, on a Sabbath day, a day of rest and feasting and enjoying, 
to go over to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, the most stringent, the most powerful, the high-end folks in the religious world at the time, the most devoted, and this is a ruler of them, someone who's in charge, the most important rabbi, if you will. But it tells us that they were watching Jesus real carefully. They're not sure about this guy. Is he for them, against them? Is he with them? Is he real? Who is he? How did he get invited here? Are we sure? Let's keep an eye on this guy. We might have to kick him out on the other side of the velvet rope if anything goes wrong. And he tells them a parable. He says he told a parable to all those who were invited when he noticed how all of these other guests were rushing to take the places of honor. Oh, no, no, that's, that's the table. I mean, you know, this is fine. This is how a wedding works. But this, this is the table for the family of the, of the bride. You, you're out there in the outer darkness of the banquet hall, right? They're rushing to get at the main tables and the main place. And it was this, I think, that they hungered for more than even whatever was going to be set before them. That's what the text shows us. What they're watching, what they're looking for is a place of honor at the table, an exclusive table, a table that only the insiders get to sit at, and then the best seat at the most exclusive table. Who's in? Who's out? Where do I stack up in the hierarchy that is nestled within this inner circle? How much honor and respect do I get and deserve? What they're hungering for is exclusivity. And their feasts, their parties, their celebrations, their social circles are designed to keep people out. $15,000 ahead will do the same thing. It's designed to keep people out, to show who's on the inside, who's special, who has the honor, who's earned it. And this is a temptation This is a problem, and it is also just the surface of how many of us in our lives live and welcome and feast and eat and socialize, that our feasts, just as that New York Post may be the most exclusive one you can imagine, our feasts similarly are often designed where we're hungering for something deeper than just food. And Jesus comes to help us look at our motivations, to look at our business as usual, our status quo, our tables, our living rooms, our churches, our friendships, the things we do, to come and to get us to look beneath the surface and say, "This this is what's really going on in your heart and the way that that is happening, the effects that that is having in the world. He gives a speech to all those listening But then he goes and says, we'll revisit that, but he says to the man who invited him, directly, cutting to the heart. And again, this is a bit of a social faux pas. You're already the bit of the outsider. I'm not sure you should have got in. You're definitely not a ruler. You're not a Pharisee. You're kind of this upstart, but we thought it might be interesting to invite you in. And here he is, like being rude, if you will. He says directly to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. What Jesus is doing here is just revealing 
what is in this man's heart and what's in his life and in his social circles and which all of that they're doing, all of their activity is based around. And that is that they were hoping for an exclusive club that they could then do favors for one another and get something in return. Jesus talks a lot about here about return, repayment, giving so that you might receive, welcoming so that someone might extend an invitation back to you. What was going on here is their motivations for this feast on this Sabbath day were about access, exclusive access, invitation, welcome, nourishment, all of these things given only to those who could give back, those who could give back in power or in praise or in pleasure. And so it's good for us to ask ourselves these questions, and we will before we're done reflecting on this together, specifically for our church, but even just you in your own life. What are your motivations for the clubs and organizations and missions and things that you get involved in? Your social circles, the people that you break bread with, that you do things with. In what ways do we expect repayment? What are our motivations? Who do we welcome and why? Who do we gather together and for what reason? There are many decent reasons, but we need to look beneath them again. Sometimes it's about loyalty, social fulfillment, just fun. But often it's about making a connection with somebody, our own comfort, just being around people that make us feel safe and okay. The rich, the famous, influential, here they are all watching Jesus to see if he is going to mess up this nice little exclusive social event. And so he points out to the host of this feast, look at your guest list. Look at your guest list and reflect. You, in essence, are inviting people to this exclusive dinner so that you can get something back in return. And look at, as I've said the parties of our world, we could go through the New York Post uh, example down to our own lives. When we only invite our friends or our family or those with influence who can give something back to us, does that not obviously lead to exclusivity, to those being left out away from the table, to division, disparity, isolation, disregard? Doesn't it almost always leave out the broken and the poor? the economically deprived, the physically impaired, and anyone that we're uncomfortable with? And what does our guest list say about whom and what we love? Whom and what we most deeply hunger for and desire? And because Jesus loves even this group of people that he's talking to, he commits a faux pas at this party that he probably just barely got into, and he's willing to call them to the carpet. And to say, look deeper at what you really hunger for. There is a lack of love in this place. You're all watching me, waiting to get me. You're all jockeying past one another for the nicer seat and the best portion. Look at yourself and reflect. Because so many of the feasts of our world, the things that we desire, that we prepare, that we get ready for, that we pay for access to, with all their finery, so often mask over a lack of love, especially a lack of love for the other who can't 
repay. And see, we were meant for something more. Jesus knows that though, we, though our hunger and desire leads us to exclusive little in-groups and then trying to climb to the highest and best place at the table nearest to the host, that this hunger is actually meant to lead us beyond that to something more, to something deeper, to something more satisfying. That these feasts, that the velvet ropes, that the access will actually never satisfy us. They can't fulfill us. And they lead to alienation and division and disparity. I just started reading for the first time. If you're a reader, you may, have, you may know of Barry Lopez. Um, he's often considered a nature writer or a travel writer, but he's actually just an amazing writer, period. And a lot of his subject has to do with uh, the creation and travel in other cultures. And he was interviewed um, some years ago by another writer named Fred Bonson. And I was reading, it was a really, really interesting uh, interview. But I wanted to read this quote to you. I think this makes the point that helps us keep moving here as we reflect. Barry Lopez, in answer to a question from Fred Bonson, says, if you ask anyone walking down a sidewalk somewhere, what is it that you really want? I think many would say intimacy. That's the thing I don't have in my life that I desperately need. Lack of intimacy seems to cover a lot of the trouble we're in. You can't gain intimacy without vulnerability. And you can't have vulnerability without trust. And part of our difficulty is that we have trouble trusting people, so we rarely get to the place where we can open up, become vulnerable. And until we get to that place, there is no intimacy for us, no emotional connection where we feel truly welcome and in which we're able to participate fully. There's always a wall there that we can't get through. I think this wall is very familiar to many of us. We know the story well. And Bonson, in reflecting on this interview, adds, in our lives, most of us have a longing to be included. In many Western traditions, when you pray, what you are saying to God is, include me. I want to be included. Your life becomes seen how to be seen, how to be worthy of inclusion, and how to include others. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, and I think this is very similar to what Jesus is doing in this passage. And that is pointing out that we think we are hungering just to consume. We think it's just those perfect oysters, which I love, and you've heard me already preach about this summer, that that's what's going to satisfy us. Get the right people in the right room, the right food, the right situation, and it might just be perfect. But what we're actually doing as we do that is creating a situation of competition where only some get in and some don't. So we think we're hungering for consumption. We think we're hungering for competition, but what we're actually most deeply hungering for is connection, communion. And when we consume too much, we rarely have room left over to commune, to connect, or even to create. We are too busy competing to see where we fit at the table. But see, Jesus wants us to commune and to connect and to create, not just to consume or to compete. One of the most memorable and important meals I've had in my entire life 
And some of you have heard the story, but it's been many, many years since I've told it or wrote about it. When I went to Ethiopia on a missions trip and we were walking through the slums made of cardboard and all sorts of other uh, detritus and trash left over, the little rooms that people were living in, we were doing AIDS relief along with spiritual care and medical care, all sorts of other things. Going and sitting with these people and I went into this one little room, uh, you know, not much larger than me and there was a very broken woman there, very, very poor, HIV positive, sick, And I was supposed to sit and bring a word. But if you know anything about Ethiopia and you know anything about ancient traditions of hospitality, there was no way I was leaving that room unless she shared something with me. And so she pulled from under a drawer that she had, a dresser that she had, a little little tub full of kind of tepid brown-looking water and proceeded to boil it and to make for us coffee around the room. And I was a little scared to drink it. I trust the boiling and the science I learned But there was no way I was going to refuse that cup of coffee from this woman when it was all that she had. And we connected. And we heard her story and we cared for her and the physicians laid their hands on her and I put my hands on her at her request and prayed with her and we were connected through Jesus Christ. And I will never forget that meal. This is what we hunger for. This is what you desire. This is what will bring you delight and satisfaction, and the good news that Jesus brings is that God is a great host, and he has a great feast, and you have already been invited. He says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited. And then he who invited you both will come and say, give your place to this person. Then you'll begin with shame to take the lowest place. But When you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus, one of his favorite metaphors for life with God in this life as a foretaste of the life to come, everlasting life, in this world, with all of the beauty of its bounty and its creation, one of his best metaphors is a wedding feast. That God is a great host who has spared no expense, including the life of his own son, to reconcile and redeem all of those who feel undeserving, all of those who are outcasts, all of those who will humble themselves to receive the invitation to come and sit in the place of honor at his table and that this should make us humble. His guest list looks like this. He says, when you give a feast, be like God. Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and then you will be blessed. Because there is no competition. There is enough to go around and consume. You will be connected with those who are dying for intimacy. Those who have been excluded, you will be connecting with them you will find the intimacy that you so desire and that will satiate you and fill you. Frederick Buechner says, God is the eccentric host who when the country club crowd all turn out to have other things more important to do than come live it up with him, he goes out into the skid rows and soup kitchens and charity wards and brings home a freak show. The pusher, the whore, the village idiot, 
who stands at the blinker light waving his hands as the car goes by. They are seated at the damask laid table in the great hall. The candles are all lit and the champagne glasses filled. At a sign from the host, the musicians in their gallery strike up amazing grace. And if you have to explain it, don't bother. This is the picture Jesus always gives of life with God through Jesus, of Christianity, of the good news, that God is a host and that there is enough to go around and it is a great and beautiful sacrifice that he has made. All the preparations have been taken care of and the grammatical note in this is every time it says when you're invited or when you're a guest, it's, uh, I, need, I need my uh, grammar people to, to correct me later, but it's something like the perfect participle. What it is is having been invited, That's what he's saying to you right now. Hey, having been invited, be this kind of guest. Do you hear what I'm saying? You you don't need $15,000 a head. There is no velvet rope out there. You have been invited through Jesus into God's kingdom. And now that you've been invited, now that you're actually sitting here at his table, now that you have people around you, be a humble guest. Because there's enough to go around. There's plenty of seats. There's enough food. There's enough honor. If you will humble yourself, he's going to lift you up. And so, be a humble, grateful guest. I mean, this is, sometimes this is just like life 101. When you parent your little children, if you have children, you tell them over and over again, if you're invited somewhere, you just say thank you. You eat what you're served. You be grateful. You be kind. You say thank you. You ask how you can help. You just humble yourself because you've been given this gift. Humble guests taking the lowest seat because we're at God's feast and we know he's generous and there's enough. And then he says to be also not only humble guests but humble hosts. He says, when you host a feast, be like God. Learn the lesson. Be a humble host. Don't do it to curry favor, to get a return on your investment. If God's guest list is everyone, including those that we exclude, then realize in every way you participate in a table or make a table or create a social gathering or open up an invitation to a social gathering or something, are we being humble hosts? Hosts that aren't about what we get in return, but just thinking there's enough. There's enough room. There's room for you. Who's on your guest list and why? You could do this a million ways. You could think through who you choose to follow on social media. You could think through who you actually spend time with. Where does your money get spent? Who are the people you hang out with? What barriers or velvet ropes or doormen do we put around our tables? I have three questions in closing for this. One, we need to work out together in this service. We're going to approach the table, and we have a table here that is God's table, and it's the Eucharist. In this table, in our church culture, in our church music, in the way we hang out, in the secret codes we've all wink-winked about, this is kind of how we do things here. Are we actually creating barriers or are we welcoming? Are we welcoming the least of these to God's feast, to the broken, the messed up, the not having it together, the down and out, the left out? In all of these new ministries and groups, I was so tickled to begin reading the last week and talking through and planning all of the things that you guys have written back about what you would like to see happen in the church and to be a part of. And so many of you talked about having people in your home. And yes, 
thank goodness it's been so long and I'm excited for it. And as we do these things, we have to ask ourselves in the culture of our homes, in the kinds of food we do, in the time, in the place, in the openness, in the awkwardness, are we making these places of welcome? Does our guest list allow God's guest list to come in? And then, of course, as I've asked a bunch already, just what barriers do you have in your lives? With your time, your home, your resources, your friendship, your attention. Is your table an exclusive one? Or is it one that's opening up more and more to those outside of you? Yesterday, we had an event to go to out near the beach. So my wife and I decided to pop over to Jacob Reese for two hours and get a quick late afternoon swim in. And I'm driving through New York. It's not something I really enjoy doing, especially I don't like having to drive an hour through competitive traffic. Let's just call it competitive. Uh, Where I'm trying to get to this place, a beach, and get my little piece of it and enjoy it. And I've just got everyone else is my enemy. And they really are. And then you get there and you realize they're charging $20 a car now to get in. I I didn't used to have a car. So I'm like, what? $20 to get on the beach? Okay. That's crazy. And then there's thousands of people. And I'm like, look at all these people. There's just hordes of humanity. And it's too many of them. And look at all the trash everywhere. And oh, they're loud. And they got their boom box. And I'm like, ugh. I just, what is this, right? And then as we sit down, I do my best. I swim. I feel a little better. And there's this large Indian American family next to us with the best feast you've ever seen. I'm serious. They had, they had brought, I was like, I said to Laura, I said, man, I wish we had been invited to that picnic. They had so much homemade food that they brought out. Biryani, different kinds of grilled meats and vegetables, and they were stacking it high, and then they pulled out watermelon drinks. And they're so happy. There's like 20 of them. And as we're just sitting there talking about 20 feet away, out of the blue, one of them walks over to us and says, would you like to have some Indian food? And we're like, yes, we would. Does it matter that we're going to a barbecue in an hour? No, it doesn't. We want to eat that. And they brought us over a heaping two plates. We couldn't even eat it all, just heaping plates of food. And then came back later and offered us water. And then came back later and took our trash so the seagulls wouldn't eat it. And in that moment, I looked around and I thought they were just a horde of humanity that I was competing with 10 minutes ago. And now they showed me love. I have, what? Why? We kept saying, why did they offer that to us? Why did they do it? They didn't do it to anyone else. Why us? Friends, it transformed me for a moment. I went around and found people and taught, started showing them nature things and just like being the little, she, my wife was like, you're turning into that old weird guy that talks to strangers on the beach. I was like, yeah, sure. And the point is, in our life, if we will be like God, if we will extend our hospitality and generosity and food and welcome to those who aren't expecting it, who don't deserve it, it will transform us and the world and the community will grow. We will have connection, we will have intimacy, and we will have depth because we will have love, love of one another, love of God, and a place at his table and his feast. May God work that in us this day, this fall, and for years to come. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.